Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. So in these Gansfeld experiments, you have a relatively small effect, but we know with high confidence that telepathy as demonstrated in these experiments occurs. If if the topic of psychic phenomena ever comes up in standard science, it's completely dismissed as somewhere out in in the fringe or the lunatic fringe. And so you learn very quickly, you don't talk about this stuff. One of them picks up his gun, points it point blank in the face of the other person and is pulling the trigger. What's up, guys? Xavier Katana here, and this is our episode with Dr. Dean Radin. This is Dr. Radin's second time on HXP, and I really wanted to get into some of the double slit experiments he's conducted and just the quantum mechanics of what we're talking about when we talk about parapsychology and influencing things with your mind and then measuring it. Who else to bring on than Dr. Raiden to talk about such things? And, you know, Dr. Raiden is not making any assumptions with this. He is very much a hardcore scientist. And that's what I love about speaking to him. He's, he's great at that. So thank you guys so much for listening. human experiences in session my guest for today is dr dean radin dr radin welcome back to hxp thanks very much i want to bounce right into experiments that you've done just because we've done all the intro questions you've conducted a number of different experiences around the idea of using a double slit device to test the influence of consciousness with regards to the observer effect found in quantum physics what is the observer effect and how does the double slit experiment traditionally show the experimenter the wave particle duality of of photons okay so th- this is actually something that's moderately new i suppose uh not that the experiments are new i've been doing this for about 8 years now but last year uh it was april of 2016 I gave a summary talk on all of the experiments we've done so far, 17 of which have been published, all involving uh, double slit or other optical interference systems, and all looking at the this notion of an observer effect. So I'll just mention that that YouTube talk has been seen now over 430,000 times. Hmm. So that's a little unusual for a talk on parapsychology, and it, it means that people are interested in this topic. So the observer effect means that a major difference between classical physics and quantum physics is that in the classical physical world, uh, we assume that objects are completely separate and that observation, it doesn't make any difference on the system. We assume that objects are independent of being observed. In the quantum domain, 
it's known that uh, measurement or observation changes the behavior of the system. And one of the easiest ways of demonstrating that is with an optical system called a double slit. And it, the double slit literally refers to a very tiny slit with uh, two little slits, each about 10 millionths of a meter that are next to each other, typically about 200 uh, millionths of a meter apart. So those are the two slits. You shine uh, photons or electrons or small uh, elementary particles through those two slits, and you have a camera on the other side. And if, the, if you imagine that a photon or an electron is a particle, like a BB, uh, you'd expect that when you look at the pattern that is produced on, on the screen as, as it passes through the double slit, would be two bars. It would be like one bright bar behind each one of the slits. Hmm. And that is, in fact, what you get if you send something as large as a BB mm -hmm. through, through slits. But when you send elementary particles through, which are at the quantum domain, you don't see that anymore. You see a pattern of light that's called an interference pattern, which is very much like what you would get if you were passing waves through the two slits, just like water waves. Okay. So this is peculiar because, uh, it, and in fact, this is the way that you demonstrate that light and elementary particles have characteristics both of waves and particles. They look like particles. They show up on the screen as individual dots, but the pattern of dots looks like it, it was a wave. And so there's like puzzle number one. Hmm. Uh, this is why when we talk about something like a photon, it sounds like a single particle, but that's only, it's like half of the side of a coin. It has two sides to the coin. The other side is, yeah, but it also behaves like a wave. So. The second mystery here is that if you have a system set up so that you could tell when you shoot a single photon, a single packet of energy, which sounds like a particle, you send it through or toward the two slits, and you can measure which slit that it goes through. And there are many, many different ways of measuring which of the two slits it goes through. Mm -hmm. If you do that, then the pattern that shows up on the screen is suggests that what went through the two slits is a particle. Looks like BBs again. And as soon as you turn off your, met, your method of measuring which of the two slits that it went through, then it starts acting like waves again. So th the observer effect is what you can know about which of the two slits that the photon goes through. And th that mystery, which is still not resolved very well, that mystery opens the door just a crack into physics for some element like mind or consciousness, because mind and consciousness are all about gaining information, and gaining information is what seems to make photons act like particles or waves. There's an element of the, the quantum measurement problem that once some kind of physical system, such as the double slit devices, observed by the measurement apparatus, the physical system and the measurement apparatus are no longer independent, and they become entangled. Is that, is that, am I on the right track here? Yes, that's correct. If this wasn't strange enough about where the measurement ends and where the quantum becomes a more classical understanding of what's going on, what is the von Neumann chain? Well, John von Neumann was uh, not one of the founders of quantum mechanics. He came along maybe 15 or 20 years later, but he was a, a mathematician who put the mathematical foundations of quantum mechanics 
uh, on a, a, a firm foundation. His book on the mathematical foundations of quantum mechanics is basically the Bible of quantum mechanics. So von Neumann was wondering, like many people have, about this observer effect, and also trying to wonder, well, when does the wave-like nature of quantum mechanics turn into the classical object-like world that we live in? Mm-hmm. Where, where does that happen? And so he came up with the idea that uh, if you imagine that your eye is looking, some aspect of, of your awareness is based on what you see, then that's not good enough to describe what measurement means, because you can think of what your eye sees as a, as a purely mechanical process. The, the photon hits your eye, and that stimulates the nerves and that goes into your brain and your brain has certain patterns. All of this is a completely physical process. And so that's not going to collapse another physical system because it's the same stuff. From a quantum mechanical perspective, your eye and your brain are just other quantum systems. There's nothing there to change the quantum nature. Mm -hmm. So he came up with this idea that what's going on with measurement is what he called a psychophysical process meaning it is a mind-matter interaction. And the only part that he could think of that would be very different than purely physical system would be consciousness itself, which he presumed was non-physical, or at least not physical in the way we usually think of physics. He gave the notion that there's something peculiar about consciousness that allows consciousness to interact with matter and cause it to behave in different ways. And so that's one of a number of interpretations of what the observer effect is about. Mm-hmm. So his proposal is not something to be dismissed lightly. And more importantly, it's a testable idea. A recent article in New Scientist uh, mentioned that an, an article was written recently by a well-known physicist who suggested that maybe consciousness really does have something to do with the way that quantum mechanics works. And you, you see this about every 20 years. A mainstream, prominent physicist will say, well, you know, maybe there's a way of doing an experiment to see what is the role of consciousness in the physical world. So this is great because it means it's a discussion that can take place in mainstream physics. And it's also a little frustrating because we've been doing experiments like this, not just mine, but within parapsychology, these types of experiments have been going on since the 1960s. And when you look at the body of that evidence, The overall evidence is extremely strong, suggesting that there is something about consciousness that is interacting with the physical world. So the reason why I've been using optical systems, and in particular double-slit systems, is because uh, when you use something macroscopic like a dice uh, or a die, it becomes more difficult to imagine what's going on. Also, to a physicist, it would seem creepy because the object you're using is too big. Like it's a macroscopic Mm. die, which is big. Mm -hmm. So in the 1960s, uh, a physicist came up with the idea of using a random number generator. And so his experiment was explicitly looking at the notion of whether the mind interacts at the quantum level with quantum particles. uh, And his experiment suggested that they did. So that gave rise to 40 years of people doing experiments involving random number generators as the target. And overall, those studies provide evidence that something's going on. So hmm. what we did is simply take it into another, another level by using the optical systems, which are now much closer to what most physicists are familiar with. 
uh, even the analysis that we're using, the measurements, everything else is very similar to what you'd find in Physics 101. So to make a very long story short, we've done these 17 experiments now. We, we do get strong evidence, statistically, that minds directed at double-slit optical systems will cause the interference pattern to change a little bit, but statistically quite robustly. And even more important, whenever you do an experiment like this that's challenging what people expect, uh, you, you can't rely on any one laboratory to make a strong case because a person from the outside will look at it and say, well, if that effect is true, it's a breakthrough. It changes our notion of the way that we think reality works. So I, I don't think we're going to believe you until somebody else comes along completely independently and replicates it. So I'm happy to say now that a colleague at the University of Sao Paulo, uh, we sent him some equipment, we sent him a double slit and a few other items, and he constructed his own double slit system from scratch, did experiments using advice that we had developed over the years, and he did a successful pilot study and now a formal replication, both of which were, were quite significant statistically even to the point now that we've begun to discuss the possibility of a technology based on the use of a double-slit system uh, that would be essentially a detector of the mind. So we're testing conscious awareness with this double-slit test. How far away do you think we are from seeing this sort of leap in human consciousness how can we detect that measurable change? And you know, what are you doing to affect the human factor while this experiment is being conducted? Well, those are two quite different questions. So the first question is, how do you know, I think, if I interpret it correctly, how do you know when the paradigm is changing? Mm -hmm. is, is that a fair restatement? Yes, yeah. Okay, so in that case, there's two ways of thinking about why paradigms change. One is that uh, you can imagine a line uh, going, and this is the current paradigm, and all of a sudden there's a state change, and like a step function, and now we're in a different paradigm. That's a sudden change. That happens occasionally, but pretty rarely. What's more likely is that you imagine that uh, we're sort of bubbling along with a certain paradigm, and there's a huge status quo that wants to maintain that paradigm, because a lot of careers have been made using that paradigm. So when anything comes along that seems a little strange, there's a lot of resistance against it because people don't want their careers to change. So there's resistance and the resistance, but the evidence keeps building. And so you can imagine something like a slowly increasing exponential curve. Then it goes almost straight up. At that point, it becomes like a step function and you get a change very fast. But it takes a long time for this exponential build to, to occur to get up to that point. So I would say now that if, if you imagine that this, we've been in a flat paradigm or a uniform paradigm for a long time, that uh, we are definitely going in the direction of a shift. And so at this stage, where previously it may have taken a half a century or a quarter of a century, it's shrinking now. So maybe now we're in a matter of a decade or half a decade before you start to see major changes. And And there are a number of reasons for this. One is that even 10 years ago, most physicists thought that uh, quantum processes were completely irrelevant in understanding living systems. Well, that's no longer the case. There's a whole field now of quantum biology. As quantum biology continues to advance, 
soon people are going to find that it, it's operating in an important way in neurons. And the, some, the moment somebody sees that there's quantum effects in neurons, it's not a very large leap to the brain. There are already people thinking about quantum mechanics in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that point, it's not a big leap to speculate that uh, some aspects of brain function are not located in space or time, because that's, that's like the key mystery of quantum mechanics. It's not in space-time, out, outside of space-time some way. Hmm. And that would mean that our brains are mostly localized, but some portions of our brains are not in space or time. Well, cast into other language, it sounds almost exactly what we describe as mystical and psychic experience. It's a portion of your brain which is not inside mm-hmm. your head. It's yeah. outside somewhere. So this, this used to be a fantasy. I was writing about uh, this maybe 25 years ago, projecting that at some point, we're going to get to the stage where it could be predicted that things like telepathy and clairvoyance and so on should occur based on what we know about quantum mechanics in the brain. So that's, that's like one area. Hmm. Another area is that there's a, a growing trend in most of the hard physical disciplines and in biology, which are suggesting that if we're trying to understand the, the ultimate basis, like the foundation upon which all of science rests, 20 years ago, most people would have said, well, it rests on physics. It's matter and energy. Today, you get many different kinds of answers. And so some of the answers you're getting now is, well, there actually is something below matter and energy. It's information. Quantum information science is a a growing field now. And there are many other areas in mathematics and in computer science looking at the possibility that what's really at the bottom, or at least as far as we can see at the moment, is something like informational fields. Well, informational fields sounds a lot closer to mental constructs, because the mind or consciousness can be thought of as an information processor, essentially. The gap between mind and the ultimate physical um, substance is beginning to close. So it becomes more and more plausible that there's something peculiar about consciousness and information that might make it more fundamental than space or time. You can see from afar that they're beginning to converge toward what more and more people, including well-known philosophers, are saying that there's something fundamental about consciousness. It's not just being a production of the brain. It's more fundamental than that. Well, if we continue to go in that direction, as I think we will, then at some point, consciousness as fundamental will be accepted. At that point, suddenly the whole domain that we currently consider to be anomalous, including everything in parapsychology and mystical experience, will suddenly be viewed in a new light. And in that light, it's not anomalous at all. So if science science and, and religion both have pretty strongly rejected the notion of, of ideas like magic and psychic phenomena, from a religious perspective, it was banned as demonic. And it was banned in science because science focused on the external world and didn't really have ways of understanding what was going on on the inside. Mm-hmm. So science and religion are two primary holders of our knowledge of reality. They both rejected the, the notion of psychic phenomena, magic, all of those ideas. And as a result, it has been extremely slow in a modern sense to begin to understand these things in a new way. Fortunately, science is not 
locked into dogma. It, it's aspirational sense is to be open and exploratory and change as new data comes along. So we now have scientific data that's basically pushing the paradigm so that eventually it will it will begin to see reality and ourselves in a new way. You know, I, I want to talk about the GANS field. How does that work when you're doing an experiment and testing that field for telepathy? Can you describe that for us, please? So the Gans field is a German word meaning whole field. It was developed by Gestalt psychologists in Germany in the 1930s or so. And the idea was that you want to create a homogeneous, low-level stimulation. Because at the time, the alternative is to put somebody into a sensory deprivation chamber, like a flotation tank. Uh, this does very much like that, except that you don't need to be floating in water and uh, difficulty. So instead, you sit somebody down in a comfy chair. You have them put on headphones that play white noise, so there's no pattern. You have them put on a half of a ping pong ball over each eye, keep their eyes open, and then shine a red light in their face. Mm -hmm. And so they can't see anything, they can't hear anything, uh, but they're fully awake because they are getting a stimulation. It's just one that has no pattern to it. And after a few minutes in that state, maybe 10 minutes, most people, because they're, they're not allowed to fall asleep, uh, you begin to go into a hypnagogic state. It's like a waking dream state. And that's exactly the kind of state that you want someone to be in in a telepathy experiment where they're playing the role of the receiver of the telepathic information. Because the idea is that you become exquisitely sensitive to any subtle impression that might arise. Hmm. And the impression in this case is your partner, who's the sender somewhere at a distance, who's given a randomly selected picture, uh, or sometimes they see a randomly selected video clip, and their job is to mentally send that information to the person who's the receiver in the Gonsfeld state. So the sending period might go on for 20 minutes, and then the receiver is taken out of the Gonsfeld condition. If they said anything aloud, uh, then that's played back to them. Because when you're in the Gonsfeld state, it's very dreamy. It's hard to remember what, what it was like, just like it's hard to remember a dream sometimes. Mm -hmm. So you listen to what you said, and now you're presented with four images one of which was the one that the sender was trying to send to you, and then three decoys. So since the original target image was randomly selected, there's no way that either the sender or the receiver could have known in advance what the image is going to be. So the best that the receiver could do in this condition, if there's no telepathy, is guess correctly one in four times. In other words, a 25% hit rate. So this experiment has been done over 4,000 times. And the overall hit rate is approximately 32%. Well, it doesn't sound like much from 25% to 32%, but that 7%, given the 4,000 sessions that have been conducted, means that the odds against chance are beyond a quadrillion to one, a, a, a thousand trillion to one, that it's a chance effect. So this, and among other things, shows the power of statistics. Get enough data, even if you have a small effect, after a while, you gain very high confidence that the effect that you're seeing is real. So in these Gansfeld experiments, you have a relatively small effect, but we know with high confidence that telepathy, as demonstrated in these experiments, occurs. And it doesn't explain what telepathy is, 
but it says that what people report in the real world as apparent telepathic connections, that that can also occur in the laboratory under highly controlled conditions. Is there an experiment that you've done that kind of blew your mind in the, the largest way? Is there anything that you can recall that did that? Well, they all do that. Okay. You see, because I had a completely traditional scientific training, and if, if the topic of psychic phenomena ever comes up, in standard science, it's completely dismissed as somewhere out in the, in the fringe or the lunatic fringe. Right. And so you learn very quickly, you don't talk about this stuff. Uh, you don't even know that there's any literature on it. And if you do know something about the literature, you dismiss it. You don't even look at it. So that's what I did up until about the end of graduate school. And I eventually started looking into it in more detail. And I became impressed pretty quickly that there was evidence. There were proper ways of looking at experiments of this type. And I started doing experiments, and to my initial surprise, I was getting interesting results, similar to what other people had reported. So that, that was the first hook for me, that you can use proper scientific methods and get evidence suggesting that these kinds of effects are real. But I would say then, as just to give you one example of a translation from an experience that somebody had into an experiment that gave pretty robust results. A friend of mine told me once of, of an experience he had, which I, I call presentiment. It's like precognition, except that precognition has the word cognition in it, which means that you are consciously aware of the effect. Presentiment is information from the future, but it's a feeling. That's what the sentiment is about. So presentiment means pre-feeling, but without cognition. Mm-hmm. But the way you'd measure that is to measure aspects of your body physiologically, uh, skin conductance, pupil dilation, heart rate, things like that. Right. These are useful because they show what's happening below the level of conscious awareness. And there's a, a lot of data now suggesting that all psychic phenomena bubble up initially from an unconscious state. So the story was this. Uh, this friend uh, liked to go hunting. And he, uh, before he would go out on a hunting party with his friends, he had two pistols. And uh, he was at the point where he was cleaning a, a six-shot revolver pistol. And he would always keep five bullets in the cylinders and the hammer over the empty sixth chamber hmm. to, to make sure that in case it was jostled, it wouldn't accidentally fire. Mm-hmm. So he took the bullets out. He cleaned the whole gun. He's putting the bullets back in. He puts in one, two, three, four, and then he's about to put the fifth bullet in, and he gets a bad feeling about the bullet. And so he doesn't put it in, and he sets it aside. So two weeks go by, they go out hunting, uh, the folks come back to the cabin, and they start drinking, which you shouldn't do if there are firearms around. A fight breaks out between two of his friends, and one of them picks up his gun, points it point blank in the face of the other person, and is pulling the trigger. And in this type of revolver, the hammer goes back, the cylinder revolves, and then the hammer hits the next bullet. So this is happening. And of course, my friend intervenes. He jumps in between the two to try to stop it, but it was too late. The hammer, the trigger had been put all the way back, and the hammer is now going click onto the fifth chamber. It went because the cylinder turned onto the chamber where he did not put the bullet. Right. And he realized at that point, if he didn't take that bullet out, he'd be dead. So it's as though that moment of shock had rippled backwards in time to two weeks before where he's he's holding the bullet and he got a really bad feeling about it. 
Well, he didn't have any sense of what of why. He just felt it was wrong somehow. So now you'd say, okay, this is the real life experience. People have these kinds of things happen. In any given case, you could dismiss it as a coincidence. So we said, okay, maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe you really do get a sense of important things in the future. So we want to simulate that in the laboratory. Well, in a laboratory, you can't put people at risk for real, mm-hmm. but you can simulate it. So what we did was we had somebody down in front of a computer screen, wired them up to look at uh, skin conductance and heart rate and uh, blood pressure. And then they would press a button and five seconds later on the screen, they would see either a very calm or a very emotional picture. The very emotional picture was like uh, standing in front of a gun that's about to shoot you in the head. And the very calm picture is a control. And the question is, if the future is somehow rippling backwards to you and affecting you at an unconscious level, mm-hmm. then before a calm picture, you shouldn't show much of an effect. But before a very emotional picture, maybe your body begins to react to it. So the experiment is done with 30 to 40 pictures in a row, each one separated by maybe 30 seconds so that you're, you can calm down if you see an emotional picture. And they're presented in a random order that nobody knows in advance. And you do this for multiple people. And then the final analysis is you look at how the average physiology is before a calm picture as compared to before emotional pictures. And to make a long story short, we did that experiment. We got very strong evidence that people were much more emotional before the emotional target than they were before the calm target. So as, as often happens, I presented this and my colleague said, that's ridiculous. This is way too good of an effect. We don't see effects like that in experiments. So fortunately, a few began to try to replicate the effect, and they were able to flash forward 20 years into the future, and there are over 40 replications by labs around the world. Uh, Meta-analysis has summarized all of them, and there's basically no question that from a physiological point of view that people do respond, or at least you unconsciously respond, as reflected in your body, to events that are about to unfold that are emotional. And you respond differently than if it's about to be a calm event. Hmm. That's an example of, of like constant miracles where I simply take experiences that people talk about, figure out a way of safely replicating that in the laboratory, and then see whether or not, at least in principle, if the kinds of experiences that people talk about, especially ones that re- occur a lot, can we see that in the laboratory where we're able to rule out coincidence? And the answer in most cases is... Yes. You have been listening to the Human Experience Podcast. If you would like to hear the rest of this interview where Dr. Raiden gets into meditation, why meditation is so important and how it connects us to this sort of ethereal layer of connectivity, why it increases this connection to the psychic phenomena that we all seem to exhibit and receive, then become a member. Become a member of The Human Experience. Go to thehumanxp.com slash members. You can just click become a member and you will get access to all of our premium content from all the guests that we have had on from when we started doing the members content area. So thank you guys so much for listening. You will hear from us next week.